As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. A new week, but the same old stories, Harm, as we get set for another week of Canucks hockey. This team is heading out on a five-game road trip, and we are talking about another blown lead. We thought we'd gotten through all of that after the first road trip, these blown lead things, but they got a point, but they were up 3-0. They were up 3-1 going into the third period against a feeble Nashville Predators team, and bang, bang, within a couple of minutes to start the third. Uh, That's where they were. They was tied, and the Canucks... Boy, in the shootout, did that look painful. And here we are talking about a team that can't seal the deal and everything that looked like it could have been better statistically, standings-wise, all of it got changed by one period and one point in the standings. Yeah, and it was really disappointing because you look at that game and it was one of the Canucks' more complete efforts, I thought, in, in their overall better performances. The first period, I thought, was Vancouver's best frame of the entire season. Sure. Nashville had nothing going offensively. Canucks were able to limit them to just three shots total, just one shot at five on five. The Canucks were pushing in waves, forechecking the hell out of the Preds. Perfect three for three on the PK. Yeah, and it wasn't just that they killed those penalties. They actually looked pretty solid doing them. They weren't getting seemed... East West all the time. Ethan Bear in particular made a couple of huge defensive stops. Uh, the power play was clicking. And after that period, up 3 0, you just thought this team's rolling. And now they're going to be able to pick up four or five, head into this road trip with some momentum. And it just kind of fell apart from there. Now, I don't think this was, this collapse was quite like the other ones. I mean, it doesn't change the result at all. And at, at the end of the day, at this point in the season, given the hole the Canucks have dug themselves in, the result is all that pretty much matters. But it was interesting where, yeah, the third period was passive and they were on the ropes there for the first 12 minutes or so. But when I watched that period, there weren't that many egregious turnovers. There was one bad defensive breakdown on um on the goal where Stillman and Myers kind of got crossed up there at net front. Um, there was a goal Demko would have wanted back. But overall, as far as blown leads go, I actually didn't think it was quite like the 
ones on the first road trip. And yet it doesn't matter because the Canucks have dug themselves too deep a hole at this point. Yeah, it, it doesn't look good. I mean, you, you can sit there and try to justify it and separate it from what we've seen before. But, you know, like it, it happened so quick it, to start the third, like you blinked and here they were. And then they weren't back on their heels for the entire third. You know, they did they didn't make a push from time to time, but it's just watching it that you could you could see in the second period early on, so against the run of play, when Nashville got the first goal, you could see all of a sudden just that vibe seep into the building, seep into uh, the team. Um, just all of it, like it, watching it play itself out. And then at the start of the third, they gave up another early goal. And then you blink and the, th- the third one's in the back of the net to tie the game. You know, when you talk about a fragile team, this is what it looks like, right? And it wasn't necessarily wave upon wave coming at them after they got up 3 nothing or up 3-1 heading into the third because Nashville doesn't necessarily have that to offer. But you could certainly see the Canucks on their heels a little bit and waiting for for the other shooter drop. I mean, it's, it's tough when you're in their situation right now and the margins are so fine. You know, you just, you're so used to bad things happening. You almost perpetuate them. It, you know, it turns into the self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, I know you can't quantify those kinds of things, but we've been around it long enough to, to feel that it's happening. Yeah. It, it sort of certainly felt that way in the third period after the second goal. Yeah. I actually thought coming out of the second period that it was another relatively solid frame for the Canucks, especially because the first Nashville goal that they scored was, first of all, it was off of the instigator penalty called on Tyler Myers's fight after the um, heavy hit Jeannot had on Ethan Bear. First of all, I don't mind jump Myers jumping in in that situation at all. I actually really loved it considering that this team hasn't done that often enough he, over the last few years. He, he probably guys. thought that only the fourth man in would get ejected, which is what happened the previous game. I know exactly. And, that, and that's where the inconsistency comes to where, I mean, Boudreaux was, look, it was it an instigator by the rule book. Absolutely. But it doesn't really get called, called that way very often. I mean, how many times do you see a big hit and a guy chases the, the hitter down and they fight and, he doesn't get called for the instigator. So Myers himself said he was a little bit surprised by it. Boudreaux said he wasn't. So um, you can take that for what it's worth. But even the power play goal that Nashville had, it was sort of the perfect sequence where I went back and watched the tape and looked for some sort of breakdown, like what what pass did they allow or, or, or what happened there that um, allowed the goal. The Canucks played that actually really well. And what you'll notice on the replay was Hughes' stick was actually right in the lane to try and seal off the pass, which eventually led to Jordan Gross to the net front, redirecting it uh, past Demko. Hughes' stick was right in the lane. It just hopped right over Hughes' stick and onto uh, and onto Gross's stick. And that was just a tough bounce there. And from there, I agree. Once the second one went in, which... I want Demko to have that back personally. The rebound we're talking um, about. N- no, the 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 second goal Nashville had the gross sort of oh, point shot. Sorry, sorry, yes, it was yeah. screened through traffic, but there was no deflection. Right, it's not an easy save necessarily, but in that spot, considering how fragile this group can be with leads, especially that early in the period, where you know you've got to defend for another fifteen minutes or so. Once that one went in, that's where I went, oh boy, 
oh boy, this team's in trouble. And then obviously the team compounds it with um, Stillman and Myers, both, I don't know what they were doing on that play. Pass goes through Stillman's um, legs and, and Myers kind of isn't able to recover and they're able to to get that past Demko. But I mean, I, I just don't know what to say with the team anymore. Like it, it was one of their best games overall in terms of process wise and how they played and they still couldn't get the job done. And now I'm looking ahead at these next couple of games and the thing about games like the one against Nashville is there is they can be especially deflating because the team knows they play well. And when you're in a rut, when you've already dug yourself a hole, you need bounces to kind of go your way and to kind of feel good about yourself. And when you play good and you can't get the result, it can sort of reinforce this belief in a group that we aren't good enough. Because if we if we're putting up our B plus type game, an A minus type game, and we still can't get the job done, and we're in this rut, and it feels like so many things go against us anyway, that can be really deflating. So it's going to be interesting to see how it sets the team up mentally ahead of this road trip, which isn't going to be easy. Well, I mean, you know, and to underscore your point, when you look at those first five games in that trip, there were some good performances, right? I mean, the, the worst was probably when they came home and played Buffalo, but on the road, there were some good performances in in a number of places from the first two periods against Edmonton, the first two periods against Minnesota. There was a lot where they could have found a way to nurse those leads home and they didn't. So it certainly takes you back to that. Uh, I think I, I agree with you in that this game, they were even that much better for most of it against a very much, you know, against a very ordinary team in Nashville. So it was uh, certainly disappointing to see that they couldn't pull it out you know, on any level, even in this circumstance at home. You talk about going on the road trip, some interesting comments after the game and the Canucks kind of edited them out of what was posted on their site. So we're talking about JT Miller and Jeff Patterson uh, asked, um, he asked him about, you know, the energy in the building and, you know, this kind of thing. And he said, I just want to look at it right here. He like he was asked about the nervous energy in the building. And he basically said that, you know, I'm not worried about the energy in the building. And then he went on, like you could see the Canucks had edited out what was posted. And really what he said was essentially the building's so volatile right now. Fans cheer when they score. Uh, you know, he talked about the jersey being thrown on the ice. Um, you know, he and then he said, look, I'm more worried about what's going on in the locker room than what's going on in the ice, right? Just to kind of put it in context. But there were some comments that would lead you to believe that, yeah, the building and the energy in the building is something they absolutely notice. Because fans certainly are at that point, right? Where they're angry, they're apathetic, they're cynical, they're bitter, they're all of it, right? And the players clearly feel it. Right. And the comments that were edited out where he was, you know, just talking about, you know, the, the volatility in the building and just kind of the inconsistency and, and how they react when things go well, things go, don't go well, like all of it. Yeah. They feel it. And now they're going out on the road. And obviously the first five game road trip didn't necessarily do great things for them, but maybe now they need to get back on the road. I don't know if I'd necessarily go that far. I, th I think that was more JT just being flippant and he's a sort of, He's the sort of guy that, first of all, I think the premise of the nervous building was 
Like that was presented in the question. And of course, I mean, the players, when you go back to the home opener against Buffalo, um, that stings in terms of the pride and the ego. But overall, I thought against Nashville, for example, I I thought the fans gave them, I I thought the building was really good. And it was really good against Anaheim as well. And so to me, I don't think that the nervousness or the crowd reaction should have really played on the mind of any of the players, to be totally honest. I think we're so far removed from the response against Buffalo to where even when the Preds tied the game up, I was at the game, I didn't sense this uh, restlessness or uh, people necessarily pissed off. In fact, in the first couple periods, I, I was thinking to myself, wow, the atmosphere is great here. They've picked up really strongly from the Anaheim game where obviously it was special because of Kevin Bieksonite. I, I don't know. I thought it was a packed building. I thought the energy was good. I, I personally just looked at that as Miller's a pretty flippant guy and he always seems to, whether it's social media, whether it's trade speculation, whether it's fans in the building, he just tries to yeah, I, I just I just don't think he really cares about about anything that happens outside of um outside of the little, uh, outside of the bubble of the team and and what's going on on the ice and and that's sort of what fr- can sometimes frustrate him in terms of the ind- individual play and how the team as a whole is faring. Um, I thought it was more just flip it and I don't really care what's going on in the, in the building if um if you if you as a reporter sort of um you know JPAT asked about the nervous uh energy and. Um, that was kind of my read on it. But even the word volatility didn't resonate with you at all. Like that is a description of the building. I mean, it's true. Like he's not wrong. I'm not debating that. He's not wrong. But I'm just saying for him to for him to say it. And look, JT just so, he says things. There's not much filter there, right? So, like when I heard it, like I agree with you. He was being flippant, but at the same time, he was acknowledging that there is a vibe in that building. And and look, the vibe's justified. Don't be critical of the fans. Yeah. You've earned the fans' reaction. The fans have a right to feel, you know, if volatility is your word, they have a right to feel that way because what's been happening here would, you know, on the heels of, you know, in context with what this fan base has been dealing with for so long. Now, they have every right to feel this way. But um, he said it flippantly, but I do think that he did take a piece of it with him. Potentially, definitely. I mean, his initial comments after the home opener kind of drove that home. Um, I just wasn't too surprised because as you kind of mentioned, JT always speaks without his filter. And I I don't know, just for that reason, I just, especially because it is the truth. I I don't think he was necessarily, um, I I don't think he was revealing anything new or or interesting necessarily. Of course, it sounded blunt, but that's just kind of who he is. So I, I didn't read too deeply into that personally. Uh, fair enough. Other notes from the game, um, you know, change in the lineup of significance, uh, Vasily Podkolzin. We knew this was just a matter of time. Uh, his ice time has been trending down. His confidence is certainly not there in the limited ice time he's getting. When we saw this guy early in the season and in the preseason, we thought this guy is not going to have a sophomore slump. He's only going to take off and go. It's still early. I expect him to be really solid for this team, you know, and a, and a high teens ice time guy that we're not going to see out of the lineup once we get into the new year. But he's, he's going through a rut a little bit right now. Um, and Nils Hoaglander got back into the lineup. So let's talk a bit about both of those things. The decision to scratch Pod Colson, which we all saw coming, and what we saw from Hoaglander in his ice time coming back and the role that he had. 
Yeah, starting with Pod Colson. First of all, I'm not worried at all about the lack of production so far this season, mainly because through the first portion of the season, he was creating so many chances, and I think he's been really unfortunate not to have picked up more points or more assists. Even just going back to the Edmonton game where Pod Colson started on Horvat's line, he set up chance after chance for Horvat in the slot. And that was just one of those games where Horvat was snake bitten. And any other night that would have resulted in at least one, if not multiple assists. And it's felt like that's kind of been the story of uh, the season for Pod Colson. Even when he played on the Pedersen line with Kuzmenko, that line was so prolific. I can't remember what game uh, who they were playing, but that it was, it was the contest where they were just chance after chance off the rush. And they just couldn't buy a break to get one past the goaltender. And so to me, that's always when a player isn't producing. That's the first thing I think about is, are they producing chances? Are they actually driving offense? Because if the answer is yes, more often than not, that's going to turn around sooner than uh, sooner than, rather than later. Of course, over the last few games, his form, form was kind of slipping. Most notably, the most egregious mistake was probably the turnover against Carolina on the power play, which led to goal against, and that sort of um, started to really drive the momentum in the Canes' favor. Now, the scratch itself, I don't mind it. I heard Bruce's uh, rationale and logic, and he's saying, hey, I scratched Facili once last season, and from there, it was a reset, and he took over and started playing much better hockey through the second half of the season. And I think that's how Bruce is kind of viewing it as a reset. And the key is, I think Boudreaux's earned Pod Colson's trust to be able to do that. I had a chance to talk to Pod Colson on uh, during the first road trip, and I asked him about the relationship with Boudreaux and and what his thoughts were on playing for him. And he spoke so glowingly about the relationship that they had kind of built. And uh, he gave an example of uh, Pod Colson was saying he was nervous after the coaching and manage- management changes because he's thinking, man. Especially with management, this is the Jim Benning group is is the one that drafted me. They believed in me. Coaching staff, Travis Green, he's the coach I was familiar with. And he, and he was nervous about, okay, where exactly do I stand in the organization now? Especially because Pod Colson is also just, in general, the sort of personality that um, can be a little bit more anxious, can overthink situations just because he cares so much. And he spoke about having a one-on-one meeting, the first one with Boudreaux and Podkos is nervous and Boudreaux basically told him, hey, don't worry, you're a good player. I believe in you. Keep working hard. And it was just sort of, Podkos just told me that it was the sort of meeting that he came away from thinking, feeling a lot more confident about his game and being able to kind of buy into Bruce as a coach. And that's always important, I think, is when a player gets scratched, especially a young one, you want them to be on the same page and they may not like sitting, but they have to at least sort of respect the decision and kind of see the understanding, uh, sort of understand in it and sort of trust the process. And I definitely see that with Pod Colson and, and that's why I didn't mind the Pod Colson scratch there. So much more to talk about as we get uh, set for this upcoming Canuck road trip. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So as we go on this trip, I mean, we, we know that Brock Besser is close to returning. So, you know, there's no lineup decision there, really. I mean, I think they're being cautious and making sure he's 100% ready. He's had a number of practices now here. We've thought maybe in any of the last two games, he's going to get back into the lineup. So I don't know if there's more to it than that. I do believe that when he's completely healthy, he's going to be back in. Um, once he gets back in, that becomes even harder for Pod Colson to get in the lineup, for um, for Nils Hoaglander to stay in the lineup. You know, there are some other lineup options. We've got Nils Oman. We've got Jack Studnika, who got just over eight minutes the other night. Uh, Sheldon Dries, of course, was called up. Uh, He could just as easily be sent down. They've certainly given him a good role playing on the second unit power play. Uh, Did well uh, in terms of uh, shot share and scoring chances for and against in the last game. So what do you do as soon as Brock Besser is ready to return? Yeah, it's not easy. I think it's got to be... And for starters, I think right now with the center situation, you're probably not going to take any of those guys out, especially because Stadnika clearly looks a lot better on the wing than he did in his first game at center. Unless you think that now that he's played a couple of um, strong games or, or decent games, at least the one against Anaheim, I, I thought he was really good. Maybe you think that he's built up confidence unless unless you think that because of that, he can now go back to the middle. Um I, I think he's definitely uh, Studnika's potentially candidate to come out, um, especially because I, I'd been told by somebody when the trade was made that, okay, he is a natural center. He's been listed as such, but this was a person who'd watched Studnika very closely. And they kind of said he's a lot better on the wing in terms of his NHL pro- projection than at center. Um, so that obviously, if you're if you're then slotting Stadnika at, at wing, then then he's a more logical piece to potentially take out than um, maybe a Sheldon Dries or a Niels Oman. And then among the other wingers, first first of all, I thought it was fascinating that Besser took some of his uh, secondary line rushes in the practice before the game, uh, the most recent game against Nashville on that Dries-Pearson line, sort of subbing in and out with Garland. I really hope that Bruce isn't thinking about going back to going back to the Garland route. Um, I think that would be a mistake, even if Garland hasn't sort of played his best. I thought against Nashville, for example, that he was really unlucky not to have notched at least a point based off of how well he was playing both at five and five or on the power play. Then your other options are, I mean, at some point, do you wonder about Tanner Pearson, especially with the number of minor penalties he's taken? You look at the underlying numbers and his defensive impact just hasn't been the same as it uh, usually is. Usually we talk about Pearson and he's a sort of player where I, I joke he's kind of like the Toyota Corolla. He's just always reliable, can always count on him, never makes a mistake, but that hasn't really been him this season. So do you wonder about him as a potential potential candidate? And does he really deserve um, to, be in, to be in the lineup? Uh, obviously, Going further down, maybe a, a guy like Dakota Joshua, um, certainly in, in a fourth line sort of role. I think you've got candidates for sure. If it was me, it, right now, it's, I mean, I'd lean towards Studnika maybe just because against Nashville, I thought it was, it wasn't as good of a game as it was against um, the Ducks for him on a, on a personal level. And he obviously didn't play a lot. So I think he's probably the more, 
most logical piece to take out right away. But there are other candidates on the wings in the bottom six for sure. Yeah, I can't imagine them going down the veteran road again for this. And I say that because I don't think the Connor Garland decision went over well in the locker room. Uh, I think, truthfully, I think if Boudreaux had a do-over, I don't think he would have done that, right? Um, you know, given the reaction. And coaches have such small hands to play. And when you look at this roster, there are just so many people at the bottom end that it's easy to make a move on that it's not like you've got, you know, Corey Perry waiting on the sidelines waiting to come in, right? Like as that 13th guy that all of a sudden elevates himself later in the year when the games matter. They don't have that. They've got the other names that you've talked about. So I don't see a scenario where Garland comes out. I don't see a scenario where Tanner Pearson comes out. I think it's going to be one of the other names that we've talked about, whether it's Stednika, Dries, Hoaglander, uh, Joshua, Oman. I, I just, I don't think it's going to be anybody else other than those guys. It can't be Hoaglander um, though. Like I, I fully agree with your assessment. I'm just saying in terms of what Boudreau should do, it can't be Hoaglander at this point. I'm sorry. He's just Hoaglander not going played to well. He played really well. And for his development, it's just not good for him to be yo-yoing in and out of lineup. And in Nashville, that was... That might have been his best game of the season. Watching him play, it was obviously minutes wise. You see him at, um, I think it was eleven twenty five. But still, usage wise, sixth among forwards in five and five ice time. And there were a lot of special teams on on both ends. So that's why the minutes looked uh, lower than usual. I also like that Bruce didn't shorten the bench. I, I wondered with Nashville having tied it up three three because he's done this in the past with Hoaglander and Pod Colson. Was he going to bench Hoaglander from that um, line with uh, Miller and um, and, and Horvat? I, I was genuinely worried about that, but he continued giving him a crack, and Hoaglander just made a lot of little plays with his speed and energy to change the momentum of shifts and push play into the offensive zone. Like I was sort of making notes, making notes, and I counted a first period neutral zone interception when the Preds were trying to break the puck out and. He was able to force play back into the offensive zone. The assist that he had in the first period, really smart decision when he picked up the puck. I went back and looked at it. Soros had the short side covered. So Hoaglander's decision in that split second was either try and snipe it top corner on the far side, which Hoaglander's not a great shooter. It's low probability he can actually nail that. Or you fire it off the pads and hope for a rebound. And he did that without hesitation, one-timed it, and fully earned that assist. Um, second period, that big back check on Philip Forsberg to prevent the high-danger chance. He was heavy on pucks, winning battles. Even late in, the, late in the game, he made some really big plays to be effective on the forecheck, to win battles, to make clean plays in the defensive zone, to help transition the puck out. I thought he was excellent, and... You've got to allow him to build momentum. So if you're Bruce Brugger making a decision, I just can't see how you take Hoaglander out again. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, but uh, there are other options at the bottom of that yeah. lineup to do that with, right? And I know that it's probably going to be harder to take Oman out given the fact that, you know, they need him at center. Here's the other thing at center. Like this team outside of Bo Horvat simply can't win a faceoff. Yeah. Like this is a challenge because it's it's – forcing him out on the PK more. It's forcing him out there in situations where you hope you can just win the face off, get position of the puck and get him off the ice. Um, like this isn't sustainable. They can't win a draw. And with Lazar too, the faceoffs were an area where, you know, obviously he's out right now, but when he comes back in as a right shot, I think you were hoping that that can, 
alleviate some of those issues. Not that he's necessarily the greatest faceoff man, but situationally with strong side draws and opposing teams on power plays can sort of at the start of the at the start of the um, two minute uh, penalty can pick which side to, which side they want the faceoff and. You have a lot of left shot power play centermen, so it ends up being on um, on Horvat's weak side, where you would need a right shot. And I think the Canucks are obviously hoping that Lazar can make an impact there, and he has improved his faceoff percentage over the years, but he's still not great in there. And early in the season, especially in the PK, he I think he started the year 0 for 5 or 0 for 6 on shorthanded draws. It was a really tough look for Lazar. So even though Lazar's been effective at five on five. He hasn't been able to make enough of an impact. And so it's a question mark, even when he comes back into the lineup. Yeah. And you know what you do see as well is um, late in games. I think it is having an effect. Uh, Those numbers tend to even out a little bit. You saw late in the game when they needed a a draw on the offensive end. uh, Horvat, sorry, in the defensive end, Horvat lost it. And then also uh, the opening faceoff in overtime, he lost. And look, you're not going to win everyone. I get that. But I think sometimes when you overuse a guy, fatigue's going to set in. Other teams are going to start getting a sense of his timing as well. And it might take longer, but at some point they might win more than their share. So they need another option, not just because of the lefty-righty thing. They need another option. And, you know, like... I certainly don't want to see them go and just trade for any sort of centerman that you now have to play a lot more minutes than he deserves, or he's just killing time playing seven minutes a game just to win a few key draws. But it's kind of where they put themselves in terms of this roster. I mean, even Pedersen in the last game, 33% in the circle. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, I don't know where they're going to go with this. I don't know what the solution is. In terms of other lineup decisions, what happens on the back end now? Like, I have seen enough of Riley Stillman, and I don't want to spend another five minutes talking about Jack Rathbone, so let's spend one. This is ridiculous that they continue. Like, who is Riley Stillman, and what has he done to deserve any kind of runway here? Travis Dermott, Bruce Boudreaux says, is going to come out on the trip with them, but it's not likely he returns for the trip, or at least the front half of the trip during this first week. So there are opportunities here against Ottawa, against Montreal, potentially against Toronto for Jack Rathbone to get back into the lineup because Riley Stillman is the only guy he's got to jump to get into the lineup. And Riley Stillman isn't that good, or at least he's not playing that well right now. You know, so I understand that if you're management, you traded for this guy and you want to see him out there. Well, you also signed Rathbone to a one-way contract. So you also made that decision. So I'm hoping that there aren't other forces above Bruce Boudreaux making these decisions, you know, on the fringe of the lineup. But I don't think there are. I think it's him that doesn't have the faith. But have you not seen enough of Stillman? Oh, boy, what a brutal third period he had, especially there was one sequence where he had iced the puck. And keep in mind, this is when the Canucks were were really feeling the heat. And I think this Nashville had tied it up at this point. Or they had they had at least scored one and, and brought it within um, made it a one goal hockey game and the Preds were kind of pressing and Stillman had iced a puck and afterwards after the ensuing draw and, and the player or whatever Nashville had a delayed offside and Stillman picks up the puck he's got all the time in the world and he Erica Branson style just hammers a slap shot all the way down the ice for another icing while the Predators were tagging up for the delayed offside. I couldn't believe it. And I just, yeah, he's got to come out. 
The question I have now in terms of who gets in in the Rathbone discussion is, does Boudreaux have enough trust in Rathbone to play him over Burroughs on his offside? Because Burroughs has played well, and Burroughs has been used on his offside on the left side before, and we know Boudreaux is in a mode where he's desperate to win hockey games. And with Stillman, you are taking out the physicality and more of the abrasive element, and Rathbone definitely isn't the biggest guy, and Burroughs brings more of that in-your-face gritty style. So I wonder, does Boudreaux see Burroughs as a more conceivable fit when taking Stillman out? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I mean, uh, Burroughs deserves to be in the lineup. And, and I know the right side has almost become a little more complicated with the addition of Bear, right? I mean, there is a glut there and there's there's a positive glut there, right? Like no one's advocating to take Tyler Myers out of the lineup, right? And and Bear is is solid right now. So, you know, uh, and, and Luke Shen as well is not a guy that I want to see taken out of the lineup. So it is difficult for, for – um, uh, for Burroughs to get back in. And if he does, it's probably going to have to be on the opposite side. But I, I'm not saying there's incredible quality, top four level quality back there, but there are guys who deserve to be playing. And it seems right now that the right side is performing better than the left. Who would have thought we would have said that coming into training camp? Yeah. And with Rathbone, I do wonder because I'm just kind of looking at the situation going, well, when is he going to get get a chance to actually kind of stick? And it's tough more likely because, he goes to Abbotsford than gets a run of games here, sadly. Yeah. Well, part of the problem also is you weren't able to get him games in the second half of last season to sort of figure out exactly what he is because that would have been an excellent opportunity to figure out is he a player with a legitimate NHL future? And if not, if you don't see a future with him, rather than let him depreciate as an asset, Maybe you would have moved him in the offseason and gotten ahead of it and been proactive as opposed to now where at, at some point, I can't, the frustration is going to mount on Rathbone's end. He's a really good kid, but he just wants to play. I mean, the guy since signing out of, uh, out of Harvard in 2020, he's barely played NHL games. I think he's around 60 or, or sorry, professional games as a whole, even including the American League between injuries and the COVID and I think he's probably played less than 70 professional games over the last two years. It's 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 a really tough spot for him to be in. And the thing is, when he has gotten a look, you can understand Boudreaux's reservations because in the four games that he played, I didn't think Rathbone looked particularly great in terms of his puck management. I thought he spent a decent chunk of time stuck in his own end. But at the same time, you look at the situation he was thrust into. Rathbone's season debut was in the home opener against Buffalo. The team's reeling off of five losses. He hasn't played in two weeks. And you're throwing him into the fire in that sort of hostile environment. The team hasn't won a game yet. He's not, he's not in an optimal situation where... I think in an ideal world, the club would have been able to sort of pair him with Luke Shen, who he spent a lot of time in camp with. He hasn't played in a long time, and and he's just it's just like all right. Also, when you get into action that late, and you've seen players like No Juleson get into the lineup ahead of you, you know that you're one mistake away 
from being back in the press box when the injuries arrive again. So you're just not even able to play your confident game and you're kind of walking on eggshells. It's just not the right spot to give a player a fair run of games. And that's where, whether it was during the second half of last season, whether it was early, earlier on the road trip against Washington when Juleson sort of inexplicably got the opportunity over Rathbone. Rathbone needed to kind of get a fair look beforehand as opposed to starting in that homestand against Buffalo where you're kind of putting him in an awkward position where he hasn't played well, but he also hasn't really been given a fair shake. Yeah, and I mean, you can make the case that when he played his first game at home, that allowed the club to control his matchups. But at the same time, think of how decimated the defense was overall, especially on the right side. And now that they got Tyler Myers back, now that they've added Ethan Bear, they're in a situation to play him in a more comfortable role. Like I would go to him and say, look, you're going to get two of these next three, three games, or you're going to get all three of these next three games. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. We're going to play with Shen because now we've got Baron and uh, Myers back that, you know, you can work Bear with Hughes if you need to, or move that around a little bit. You're more stable on the right side to give him a chance, right? So this is the time when it's a little less volatile around him on the back end. And like you're, like you said, the circumstances coming into that where the team was just hemorrhaging and had no confidence whatsoever. I'm not saying they're overly confident now, but they're in a better place than they were then. So give them a chance to succeed to your point and let's see if they can get a little bit more out of them. Uh, time for one more break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's look ahead to the trip. And we open here with uh, games in Ottawa on Tuesday and in Montreal on Wednesday. We should remind you, we are going to do a live room, Drancher and I, tomorrow night, Tuesday night after the Ottawa game. We've decided not to do Wednesday. You'll remember from our last one because he wants to go out and party on Wednesday night. That is Thomas Drance, who actually I'm quite pleased with right now because he bet on the BC Lions this weekend. So he acknowledged the CFL and bet on it. Hopefully you'll do the same one day. Um, but certainly Drancer looks much, much older than you. So it fits, uh, it, you know, <laughs> it, it fits his jam a little bit. Uh, but um, nonetheless, we are going to do that after the Ottawa game. So you've got back-to-backs here and, you know, Thatcher Demko, you know, you talked about the one save that, you know, would have been nice uh, with the screenshot. It didn't get deflected if he had blocked that one. Um, you know, the Canucks could have used that at that particular time, not suggesting he struggled, not suggesting he played badly, not suggesting he needs to sit. But is there a case to be made to going with um, with Martin first and Demko second? Or should they just kind of figure they've got enough days off between games? Just go back to Demko. That's a really interesting question. I hadn't thought about the order necessarily of whether you go Martin or um, or Demko, especially because it's not as if 
one of those teams is particularly more dangerous when you look at Ottawa or Montreal. I don't think it honestly matters that much. Both Ottawa and Montreal, Ottawa is obviously expected to be a lot better. They're a little bit more of a prolific offensive team, but they're also missing Josh Norris, who's a massive shooting threat for them, both at five on five and on the power play. And so they've kind of been struggling. Montreal has been better than expected with Suzuki and Caulfield absolutely going off. So they've got a dominant top line right now. The Canadi- the Canadians do. So with that in mind, you're kind of looking at a situation where both both teams are relatively equal in terms of how threatening they look for a potential goaltender. I don't know. What would you do? I'm, I'm curious to hear what your take is. I'd go with Martin. I would. And and again, that's that's not a shot at Demko, but when I look at it, I... I I think Montreal is a more difficult place to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you can go back and forth and just give uh, give give Demko the time, right? And and not that not that all of a sudden these guys are going to be in an alternating situation, but you know I, I think the team has generally played better in front of Martin. I think this uh, this is a game you've you've got to feel it's always going to be the front half of the of the double header where you feel you're going to get the best performance from your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd put Martin there and hope that Demko can can do a little bit more in, in that environment in Montreal. Yeah, that's a good point about that environment in Montreal. The Bell Center is something else in terms of the atmosphere and how the crowd can get going. And it definitely, I think, is the spot for a more veteran goaltender like Demko, more experienced guy who's handled that pressure to maybe sort of deal with the highs and lows of, of playing in that building. Here's something pretty amusing. Do you know that Toronto... Drancers Mighty Leafs. Um, there, there's talk that they're going to play Keith Petrozelli, newly acquired goaltender who hasn't played a game for them yet. There's talk that he is going to drop into the lineup against the Canucks. Six foot six, 180 pounds wow. from Massachusetts. Only 180 like, pounds despite being six six. Yeah, thin guy, right? You just he's lazy, like he, man after your own heart. Actually, you're Jack now. You were thin before. I'm, I'm still pretty light. Yeah. So what does it say about their thoughts on the Vancouver Canucks if that's who they're going to go with on Saturday? And we're getting ahead of ourselves, but as Drancher says, you can never talk enough leaves. Well, I'd have to double check here, but I think the I'm I'm actually double checking right now actually. It might be a double uh, it might be a, a back-to-back situation for the Leafs in which case it Yeah, they've yeah, got Pittsburgh so, too. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're going to play especially because they don't have a clear number one right now. It's it's Shalgren, who's also an AHL goaltender. So you're not. I don't understand. There'd be zero reason for them to go to roll with Shalgren back to back. So I don't think it has anything to do with the Canucks um, necessarily. Where on a back to back, it could be it could be the Colorado Avalanche, and I think you're still alternating the two goaltenders. And let's be honest, even with the Penguins reeling, Penguins are still the more dangerous team with Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin and. Jake Gensel and how those guys were at least rolling in the first few games. So I don't think that's necessarily shot against um, the Canucks. But in, in having said that, that's an opportunity the Canucks have to take, in, take advantage of because the Leafs, after kind of being in mini crisis mode, kind of picked things up. They beat Boston, who who was absolutely rolling. I think I'd have to double check. I think they might have also beaten the Canes. Um, they're, they're feeling a lot better about themselves. Whereas I think earlier a week ago, you might've looked at that Saturday night game and thought 
that could, you know, they're they're reeling a little bit. They've got some injuries and they're still vulnerable, especially on the back end. Um, but that's going to be a tough game. And but it's a Saturday night, and the Canucks just always seem to have the Leafs' number in recent times on those Saturday night um, games. Last year, Demko in that game in Toronto on a Saturday night was incredible, like incredible. And then the COVID year as well, when Hopi, who was very mediocre, below par the entire season, played the best game of his life. The Canucks were coming off of that um, massive uh, outbreak. They were dog tired, playing too soon. Everybody expected them to get steamrolled. And Braden Holpe put, turns in like a 49 save performance and it gets added to the list of embarrassing Leafs losses. That was, oh, that was so good. But so on this show, though, it, it doesn't get better than a Leafs loss to the Canucks when, you know, when we've got Drancher to poke at, right? So those, in fact, I think, I think Drancher even called last year's just because, like, it just had to happen, right? Um, even Arizona, so, like, like Everybody just love. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. Everybody just loves beating the Leafs. Think back to Arizona. Arizona's tanking this season, but they were they were playing the Leafs, and you should have seen Bill Armstrong the, the 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 shots they would have of him on TV. He was invested in that game like it was Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final. He was so <laughs> so invested in the back and forth, and then they eventually beat Toronto, and it ended up being one of the biggest storylines around the league. So. I mean, everybody loves embarrassing Toronto. Petruzzelli, six games with the Marlies this year, 231 goals against, 922 save percentage. He was uh, brought to the Marlies a year ago after spending most of this season with the Newfoundland Growlers. So the Canucks facing a goaltender of quite some repute. A couple of other things I want to touch on. Kuzmenko picked up an assist in the last game, but he's just so noticeable. Like, did you expect this type of run from this player? I mean, we knew the you know, the pedigree and the resume, but we all thought there'd be more of an adjustment period, didn't we? I thought so, for sure. He's he's exceeded every expectation I could have had of a best-case scenario so far. The way I view it is, you know how in the NBA, elite players like a Curry or a LeBron sometimes get double-teamed, and when those guys get double-teamed, they usually have to dish the ball out to an open teammate, and then as the open teammate, you got to knock that shot down to make the opposition pay for doubling on the star. That's what Kuzmenko is right now. He's the open teammate that is nailing every shot when the opposition keys too closely on an Elias Pettersson or on another top player on the power play. Four of his seven goals are backdoor tap-ins. Um, well, some of at, which he didn't even have to like actually shoot. Yeah. He didn't even have to make a physical movement to shoot the puck. The pass was so perfect, he was basically a backboard. Yeah, and even the hat-trick goal against the Ducks... You watch back that goal. Pedersen's carrying the puck. There's three ducks clustered around Pedersen. And he's able to dish it. And Kuzmenko has all the time and space. And you look at Kuzmenko's power play goal against um, against uh, Nashville. Jeremy Lazan, as the D, you watch it. He's just shadowing Horvat, right? He's practically playing man-on-man defense. Instead of sort of defending down low as the defenseman, he's all the way sort of pinching in that bumper spot. and. It's like the Preds have done their homework, right? They know Horvat's the most dangerous weapon in the bumper for that top unit power play. So it, so you have both Lausanne and Trenton just choking off the bumper position. In that situation, Horvat has that has that Curry-like 
Steph Curry like presence and and gravity where he's just drawing defenders like a magnet. And so when Lazan goes goes up goes up uh, high, it leaves all that space down low. And this is the key for Kuzmenko. He started that play. Miller had the puck on the left side. Kuzmenko was by the goal line on the same side as Miller, trying to be a passing option for a tic tac toe. Right, Kuzmenko was by the goal line, and he's thinking. Miller's going to pass down to me. I'm going to pass back uh, up to Horvat for the tic-tac-toe one-timer. But he recognized that Horvat's lane was choked off and he immediately made the adjustment, slid back door so that he's a one-time scoring threat for Miller. That's the key. The read in that spot to understand instinctively, I've got to be on the other side and present myself as a backdoor because Horvat's choked off. And this is where it... it um, it really pays to have multiple threats. You need multiple threats on a power play to be effective is because then when Miller had the puck, McDonough, who is the weak side defender, he was in no man's land because he was worried about Miller passing it cross him all the way to Pedersen. So it's those options where Lazan's preoccupied thinking about Horvat. McDonough's preoccupied thinking about Pedersen that leaves Kuzmenko wide open on the back door and that's a result of that kind of um, uh, that kind of goal. And there is a genuine skill to the way Kuzmenko sneakily finds backdoor plays. In that in that option, I think it was more of um, a smart read. But at five on five, he has a really smart knack for kind of going undetected and kind of just like lurking, especially off the rush. He's he's just really good at taking outside lanes and. And, and finding the soft ice without drawing attention to himself. Um, he's got guys that are in, in Patterson that are going to create the space for him, but it it takes a certain sort of player to find the perfect timing and find the lane regardless. And I also think he's becoming a lot more comfortable making plays down low. We're seeing more spins and edge work. We're seeing more dynamic qualities to his game where he's not just relying on these backdoor opportunities. A couple of tipping goals, which I think speaks to how hard he's working in front of the net to work in traffic and ensure that he's not just a perimeter player and off the rush too. He's got really natural offensive instincts. So I've been really impressed with him. And apparently this is a cool tidbit and I, and I need to confirm this, but someone told me he uses the exact same sticks as Brock Besser. Like his sticks literally have Besser's name on them because apparently the sticks he used in Russia, they haven't found a North American manufacturer that does the curve the same way. But I thought that was a really interesting wrinkle as well, but hundred percent he's exceeded every expectation so far. Ethan Bear, after his first week as a Canuck, you know, I was expecting more high event hockey uh, based on his reputation, but I've been pleasantly surprised with um, it, what's been a low event game as I've seen it thus far. And he's he's got a reasonable ability to move the puck out of his own zone. Yeah, we knew the skating was going to be there. We knew he, he'd be able to make plays with the puck. Question mark was always going to be defensively, and that's where he's been a lot more reliable than I would have thought. I thought he was one of the club's best penalty killers the other night against Nashville. He let, he led the team overall with four blocks, but a couple of huge ones on the penalty kill. There was a first period chance that Duchesne had kind of on the weak side where a puck kind of popped out and Duchesne basically had an empty net to shoot at and Bear came sprawling across, made the huge block and single-handedly prevented that goal. There was another slot chance on the PK where Bear had a huge block. So he was really impressive shorthanded. The stretch pass obviously to hit Miller for the third period breakaway. And the minutes are also starting to scale up for him. 
1801 in uh, in his Canucks debut, 2056 in game two. Now he's up to 2120 against Nashville. He's earning the trust of Boudreaux, obviously getting some time with uh, with OEL as well, which I think could be significant given the limitations OEL has moving the puck. It's also been really important timing because the last couple of games, I think Myers has quietly struggled. Now, obviously, he was paired with Stillman, which definitely did not help because Stillman had a train wreck of a game. But it's taken a little bit off of Myers' workload, which down the road could be huge because if Bear can consistently play 20, 21 minutes and he can help out on the PK, he could be solid at five on five. You don't have to shelter him, meaning that Myers doesn't have to be hard matched against the other the other team's top lines. It could really ease Myers' workload to the point where maybe you get more dividends and maybe you get better results out of Myers as well, which is important as a trickle-down effect outside of Bears' individual impact, uh, driving play and sort of being the team's second best defenseman so far since he's joined the team. Expectations going out on this five-game road trip. Ottawa and Montreal back-to-back Tuesday, Wednesday. Montreal Saturday, followed by Boston Sunday uh, in an afternoon game. And then Buffalo to wrap things up on Tuesday. For me, they got to get two of these first three. They're not going to win in Boston. Like, that is that is going to be tough. The Bruins are red hot right now. Buffalo's a tough matchup for this team the following uh, the following Tuesday. I, am I wrong? And, you know, and look, Toronto is far better than Vancouver, even with their quote-unquote struggles. Uh, you know, they're miles ahead of the Canucks right now, but it, it will be the second end of a back-to-back with a goaltender if, in fact, he does play that hasn't played uh, in the NHL yet. So it's certainly a game you think might be winnable at that point. So for sure. what are reasonable expectations on this trip? Two for three as you nailed it. And the advantages the Canucks have on, uh, on during these first three games is that you're playing teams that are struggling to move the puck right now, which is important because it gives the Canucks' forecheck, which is essential to their offensive creation, an opportunity to play. It makes that forecheck that much more valuable. Ottawa's blue line is vulnerable outside of Thomas Shabbat. Artem Zub has missed quite a bit of time. I I, I, I don't know if, if he's going to be healthy or not by the time the Canucks roll in. Um, Sanders, Jake Sanderson has been solid as a rookie on their back end, but even if Zoo plays and even if Sanderson keeps the form up, they've got a lot of deficiencies on their blue line. Their blue line as a whole has been just as disastrous as Vancouver's. So that's an opportunity you have to exploit historically as well. I think that's why the Canucks have picked up a lot of wins over Ottawa. I know they didn't get the one at, down the stretch in the second half of last season, which kind of faded their playoff chances, but overall, even in the 2021 season when the Canucks were awful, they still found a way to pick up all three wins in the All-Canadian division against the Senators. So vulnerable blue line there. Montreal's blue line is so young, is so green. Um, They've got injuries with Matheson. And uh, again, I'd have to double check to see um, if uh, if Edmondson is is close to returning, but they're really young. They're, They're forcing guys... Like Caden Gooley is a rookie to to play t- uh, tough matchup minutes alongside a shell of a player in David Savard. You've got to take advantage of that blue line. Same thing with Toronto; they've got injuries with, with Muzzin out. They uh, are are forcing Mark Giordano, who's I believe the oldest defenseman in the league, to log really important 
minutes, they're, they're, they're in such trouble with, with Justin Hall struggling as well that they are kind of in a position where they can't even really play Riley and Brody together. So you're playing the Canucks are three teams that have blue lines that are really struggling. So opportunities you have to take advantage of because Boston's blue line has held up really well, even with McAvoy injured. Hampus Lindholm is playing like a Norris candidate. And even with the injuries that uh, Buffalo has right now, Dallin has been dynamite and you just have other pieces that like Owen Power who are really stepping up for the for the Sabres. So three games over the over the balance of this week where the four check has to be sort of really taking it to these inexperienced and uh, vulnerable blue lines. Yeah, no doubt. There's some opportunities in week one. Week two is going to get a lot harder. As for us, a reminder that Tuesday night after the Ottawa game, Drancher and I will do an episode of the live room. So we invite you to participate in that, both um, in our in our chat room as well as online, if you or as well as uh, audio, if you want to step up to the room and and call or call in old school. Uh, just uh, ask a couple of questions, get on the mic and ask a couple of questions. We will look forward to doing that, which we do a couple of times a month. And then uh, Harmon, I'll be back at it next week after four more Canuck games. Let's try for next Monday, a week from today, all right? Yep, perfect. In the meantime, if you're looking for other pod options, Stanley Cup champion Mike Rupp has some critical analysis of Austin Matthews' lack of toughness. He joins Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, and Mike Russo this week on the Athletic Hockey Show. Meanwhile, Rob Rossi from The Athletic talks about the slumping Pittsburgh Penguins this week on The Athletic Hockey Show with Sean Gentili and Max Boltman. You can also subscribe to The Athletic's NHL YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at The Athletic Hockey Show. Meanwhile, as for us, follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash bandcast. See you on the live room tomorrow night, everyone. One, sorry, one thing. We just saw uh, Drancer just tweeted out the uh, lines at practice. Man, I've given Bruce, Bruce a lot of grace here, but if this is indeed what they kind of go ahead with, right now it looks like Hoaglander is an extra, and it looks like they've got Stillman and Myers as a pair. They go ahead with that against oh. Ottawa. Disastrous. Oh, just looking at it now, that is so bad. Come on, Bruce. Well, crush Bruce after when you talk to him, Drancer. Come on, do it. The people demand it. The people we'll be back it. next week. Awesome. Cheers.